Hello and welcome to the Booker Prize podcast with me, James Walton. Me, Joe Hamia. And today it's Book of the Month time again with the choice for December falling on Any Human Heart by William Boyd, which was long listed in 2002, the year that Jan Martel's Life of Pi became a hugely popular winner. Any Human Heart is probably the most beloved book of William Boyd's 40-year career and it was also adapted by the writer as a BAFTA-winning TV series starring the likes of Matthew McFadden, Gillian Anderson, Jim Broadbent, Hayley Atwell and Tom Hollander. But not only that, this week we're joined by a special guest, Sarah Cox, TV presenter, host of award-winning drive-time show on Radio 2, but mainly for our purposes, the host of BBC Two's weekly book show Between the Covers, running as we speak for its seventh series on Monday evenings, before that top treble bill for us quizzes of Mastermind Only Connect and University Challenge. And I'm a big fan of uh, Between the Covers too, I must say, in my experience, um, TV book shows can either be way too reverent about books or a bit nervous of daring to assume that people read at all. Uh, but between the covers, the thing I really like about it is it just takes reading entirely for granted and has generally jolly celebrity guests discussing them with enthusiasm and even some jokes. Uh, so welcome, Sarah. Lovely to have you with us. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. What's the impetus for having a kind of like book show on TV? Well, so what we wanted to do was to try and encourage people to read, but we wanted the, the books to be the the focus and the stars of the show, but to almost get the recommend the books almost by stealth really by having lovely guests on that would make people laugh and would encourage people to read if possible um and we um it's a it, it's a little bit like it's it's I, I wouldn't say that I was as funny as as Rob Brydon and his team on would I lie to you but we you know we it's we wanted something where the books are there and we chat about them, but there's, you know, there's also some laughter and, and sort of human stories there as well. And all your guests bring like a favourite book for the Bring Your Own Book section. Are there any choices that have surprised you? Well, Mel Gedroyd always brings a huge book. So it's not so much a surprise as more as like it's a bit of a, <laughs> a weightlifting session trying to lift up whatever weighty tome that she uh, brings in. I've just looked at my bookshelf upstairs because I end up taking home a lot of the BYOBs and I've got Anthony Trollope's The Way We Live Now, which is huge. And that was the first one I think she brought on. And she brought on War and Peace um, as well. I think she read that when she was recovering from a hernia um, <laughs> operation. So she couldn't she couldn't move for a few weeks. Yeah, quite a long recovery. Um, yeah, but in this series, Anita Rani brought in a book of poetry uh, called Pessimism is for Lightweights by Selena Godden. And poetry is something that I just really struggle with. I don't know how you guys feel about it, if, you, if you're fans of poetry. I'm just, I just find it difficult to engage with, and I'm not quite sure where you're supposed to read poetry and how long for it or if there's any, what the poetry rules are. It's a bit like a party when somebody gets out a guitar. I don't know where to look. And sometimes we have people on the on the show who read a bit of poetry and I don't quite know what to do with my face. Uh, Richard E. Grant brought in Alice in Wonderland uh, and that he rereads a couple of times a year, I think, which always astonishes me that people have got time to, you know, reread books. Are you rereaders? I try to be. I think it's good practice. I, I'm not, no. I, I, just on the grounds of... A don't tend to go to holiday in the same place again and again, you know, because mm. there's always somewhere new. But it does mean that some some of my favourite books that I claim to be my favourite books, I can't remember almost anything about. There is that downside. Yeah. 
There definitely is that, James. I'm exactly the same. So when I get asked, when I'm talking about the show and get asked about favourite books, books, it's usually the one I'm reading at the time because my brain is a little bit like a, a one-out, one-in car park Oof. when it comes <laughs> to details and books. You might have to cross out that question then. For, uh... Yeah, please do. <laughs> Let's look a bit about your own reading history. Can you remember the first books that sort of you discovered and really liked? I think Judy Bloom was a huge author for me growing up um, with Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. Oh, it's and it was the first, such a great book. And yeah. it was the first book that seemed to talk to me at my age and not talk down to me. And I, I quickly, I mean, my mum was, my mum's a big, she was a big reader. I don't know how much she, I think now she's very much, she reads on holiday, but there would always be Catherine Cooks and novels lying around the house that my mum would be getting stuck into. Um, but then we only had like three TV channels back <laughs> hundreds of years ago that I'm talking about. Um, but yeah, I, I, I quickly got into like uh, into Jackie Collins and Jilly Cooper and Riders and Polo and all that when I was sort of in my later teens, maybe when I was like 15, 16, because um, I'm a, a fan of horse riding I've got a horse and there were some rude bits in there as well so for me I, I was like yeah reading's reading's great fun I had to read uh, Jilly Cooper for honestly sort of a worky thing once and uh, as amazing <laughs> and I've spent all my life with women telling me how great Jilly Cooper is and really funny and great but really kind of um well I think problematic might be the word now I mean basically anyone she, yeah. she doesn't like anyone sort of women who are sort of fat and hairy do they and what you know what they need you know they need a, a but they've, they've yeah, they need a good be, Roger in, like, don't they? Like a lot of things, they'll be very much of their time. I mean, I thought one of my all-time favourite films was Grease the Musical, and that's because it's just in the sort of rose-tinted past. And when you actually watch it now, you know, there's a lot of predatory behaviour on women, and it's problematic. So I watched that with my daughters, and I'm like, oh, actually, these are a bit of a sour taste. It's probably best left in the past, but yeah. Those are, those are my first experiences of reading. I always think it's so interesting, like reading stuff from when you're a child or a teen with adult eyes, because um, you notice all the things you never you never did. But then it's equally yeah. fun to see what you understood, like so clearly at the time. It's horrifying in a way. <laughs> uh, so, like moving maybe forward in time, do you have a favourite book or novel or favourite book or author? Well, so we we do the book of backlist on between the covers. So not all the author they they're just from the, the the ones that made the list that didn't win. We like to shine a light on those. And from this series, I re, I enjoyed a few. I think this is a series where I enjoyed um, most of them actually. Where I absolutely re, Paddy Clark Ha 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 by Roddy Doyle. I'd, I'd obviously read it, felt like the whole world had read it. And it was lovely to go back to that. And I listened to it on the audio book, actually, because that's the easiest way you probably know to get through a, a, a big chunk of books all at once. So um, I'd already read that. But I hadn't read any Human Heart, but it had popped up before uh, on a past series. Somebody had it as their BYOB. But I hadn't read any and Tyler. I'm busy working through Maggie O'Farrell and John Boyne's backlist at the moment myself. This is a thing that I'm read at the moment that I'm doing. But then Anne Tyler has sort of thrown a bit of, uh, there's been a bit of a grenade in my reading habits because of Redhead by the side of the road. 
I really, really enjoyed. And so now I'm reading it. Uh, is it a spool of blue bread? Yeah. I, I started that a couple of nights ago. So it's getting complicated. I've never really been a, a one for trying to investigate a whole backlist of somebody else's work. But um, I can't resist it. This keeps happening now. So I've got my Geo Farrell. Yeah, so it, it does get a little bit complicated because then my, the um, Miles Jupp's BYOB was a Maggie O'Farrell, the new one, uh, the marriage portrait, so I'm listening to that at the moment as well. So I guess the short answer is I've really enjoyed them all, this series, but that's uh, that's not actually an answer apart from said I've enjoyed all of them. But maybe Anne Tyler is the one that I connected to most because now I'm trying to read more of her. Because you're now uh, also a writer yourself, um the memoir Till, Till the Cows Come Home about growing up on a Lancashire farm and this year the novel Throne. They talk about the anxiety of influence, you know, when, you, when you're writing a book yourself after you've read all these great books. Does that make a difference? Is it scary? Well, uh, Throne came out last year and I've actually got a new novel coming out in April coming. And what happened, what I try not to do, well, I, actually, it, it, the books that I'm reading for Between the Covers especially the book of Atlas, are so good that there's no way that, you know, there's, there's, they're beyond intimidating for me. So it'd be easy to read and be like, oh, my God, I just might as well throw my laptop through the window right now. But because, you know, I'm reading this, but they're just, you know, there's, what I write is, is so not in the same sort of um, category or, or uh, you know, not as literary as anything that I'm reading for Between the Covers, certainly not for the book of Atlas. So, um, it doesn't it doesn't influence my writing. It just it sort of spurs me on a little bit. I could only dream of writing as well as you know Anne Tyler or William Boyd. But do you, and do you enjoy the writing? I love writing. Like like anything, I love it when it's when it's going well, and when it's when it's not, it feels like when I'm when I'm midway through a book, it feels like there's a little gremlin just following me around the whole time. And whether I'm out on the arse or with the dogs or with the kids or doing something that isn't writing, there's a little gremlin going, <clears throat> hello, you should be writing now. Why aren't you writing? You know, it sort of hangs over me. But like anything, when it goes when it goes brilliantly, it's a lovely feeling. I, I played piano when I was little. I was terrible. And I think there was only one point with my teacher, Mrs. McCarthy, who where I where I could read the music and where there was this lovely moment where the music just came through my fingers and I played this piece just for a few seconds and I've never forgotten it and I must have only been about seven or eight year old and uh, sometimes writing is a bit like that where it just flows and it's a, it's a beautiful feeling and then other times you're, you're like just you I'm strapping myself to a chair going I am not leaving here until I've done you know yeah a thousand words at least. Okay, thanks, Sarah. I think I think we probably should at this stage turn to any human art by William Boyd, or book of the month. Uh, have you recorded the episode about that yet on Between the Covers? Yeah, they're all recorded. They're all in the can. And did and did people like it? Everybody absolutely loved it. So we uh, we had um, Kerry Godliman on, um, comedian and actor. We had Ben Miller who. Just absolutely adored it. Nish Kumar and Laura Smith, and they all really, really uh, loved it. And Laura, Laura Smith, the comedian who used to be an English teacher, she speaks brilliantly about it. That's in the uh, episode five. It is of the of the of this seventh series, and she 
said that she, she finds it difficult to talk about because it feels like it's she's still in the story and it's her story and it's it's like you connected to it on such a level that it's like become part of her and um yeah I mean I, I listened to it on audiobook I was recommended the audiobook and it is it is fantastic okay well that's good to keep your powder a bit dry for now because um just before we go into talking about the book in a bit more, uh, Joe, rather, rather ambitiously, is going to summarise the 500-page novel now. Go. Um, I actually think it's not that difficult to summarise um, because it is essentially a collection of journals uh, written by the fictional character Logan Mount Stewart, and they run from 1923 to 1991. They span uh, several countries, including England. Um, most of the action takes place in London, but some of it takes place further up north in England. Um, France and Paris, Spain, Nigeria. And through these, uh, at first quite precise, then gradually more scattered musings, what Boyd gives us is essentially an account of the 20th century through Logan's eyes. And so we hear of Logan's exploits uh, as in the Navy and as a spy in the Second World War. Um, we see him meeting various cultural luminaries, uh, such as Ernest Hemingway, Virginia Woolf. Uh, we hear of his involvement in the Spanish Civil War uh, and his reporting on the Biafran War. And it is episodic, but still quite sprawling and very much the account of one man's personal but also historical life. How's that? What do you reckon, Sarah? Yeah, perfect. Ten <laughs> out of ten. So, I mean, I suppose the question springs to mind is uh, it is sprawling and it is episodic. And he himself says it's a, this collection of selves that makes up our life. Does it hang together and does it matter if it doesn't hang together? I think it does um, hang together Brilliantly. You can feel it through the writing. You can feel Logan Mount Stewart age. The way he sees the world also ages along with him. And I just got swept along with the journey and just didn't didn't ever want it to end. I wanted to, to slow down, slow down the story and just to just to keep going forever. I just love him as a because he's quite a cad, you know, he's quite a cad and a bit of a heartbreaker and he's unfaithful and he's a bit of a womanizer but you just end up you know you just still root for him and like him um despite some of his his behavior and I think it was really interesting I thought oh what are they going to do with the war now what William Boyd does is takes him off makes him a sort of a bit of a spy gets him in prison it's just different because sometimes with, with books when a war approaches you think oh here we go they're going to you know, are they going to just try and cover it really quickly and be like, oh, he went off and, you know, and either gets injured or gets, you know, sent home or what or whatever. But I was like, oh, I thought it was really interesting how he, how he carried him through so many big sort of historical moments. It's a bit like, I think on the show we were saying it's, there's a touch of Forrest Gump to it where with the movie Forrest Gump and the book Forrest Gump, obviously, um, where, you you know, he's there in all these moments of time meeting all these historical figures. Yes, it's, it's interesting what he does in the world. It's, it's in two parts, really. The first bit, well, he's asked to keep an eye on the Duke of Windsor, the former Edward VIII, mm. uh, first of all in Lisbon and then in Bermuda. And, and he meets, you know, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. And it's suggested they're up to no good. And then he, then he does yeah. this rather mysterious operation in Switzerland where he ends up in prison for two years, always suspecting that somehow the Duke of Windsor was behind it. 
Um, yes, no, that, that is good. What, what, what do you reckon, Joe? Um, on the hanging together question. On, on the hanging together question. I think there are probably like three points to that. Um, one is that you can quite obviously tell that Boyd's done a massive amount of planning. And he's, he's said as much himself in interviews of how to carry Logan through essentially every major historical event in the 20th century. Um, you know, so early on in the book, from quite innocuously giving the Duke of Windsor a box of matches to then ending up with him in in Bermuda as a kind of attaché to him, but also spy. So it's obviously very well sought through on that score. What I kind of maybe question is um, there's this bit where Logan's talking to Gloria, who is his best friend's wife. Um, and also, you know, because Logan is a bit of a Casanova, <laughs> paramour he's having an affair with. And um, they're having a bit of a grouch together. Gloria's hypothesizing over whether or not she's going to become a lesbian because, you know, she's she's done with men. And um, uh, Logan, Logan kind of counters. He goes, well, look at me, I said, beginning to list my misfortunes. Who gives a shit about you, she said. You'll be fine. You always have been. It's me I'm worried about. And I feel like she's got a point there because, you know, this man ends up in a prison in Switzerland, gets shot at in Spain, you know, like he's got a plot against him by the by a contingent of the royal family, but he's always fine. And I do wonder whether... Sort of fine. Course... I mean, some, some pretty terrible things happen to him. <laughs> well, sure, but he always comes through them, doesn't it? It's sort of like, do you know when you watch a TV show and like there are already like two or three seasons um, there. So like when you begin watching, the sense of risk is eliminated because you know the character's already going to exist in season three. You're like, oh, they can't die. Nothing bad can happen to them. Because I know that I've got like two more seasons to watch. Yeah, this would be like that about James Bond, wasn't it? You yeah, could, I, fe I felt that way a bit yeah. about Logan, to be honest. Um, but there was no... Although like... it takes a while for him to recover when he loses uh, his great his great love. Don't yeah. give way too much. No, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really it's, hard. That's really heartbreaking. And sudden as well. A real like, what? Hang on a minute. You know, when... Two of his great loves at the same time. I guess. Yeah. What you're saying, Sarah? I mean, he is he is somehow lovable, isn't he? Even though, if you were to list his his, his characteristics, they wouldn't add up to an obviously lovable bloke. No, but he's like he's a bit of a bad boy, isn't he? And you know, he just seems to, uh, you know, to to Joe's point, to sort of bounce from situation to situation, relationship to relationship, and to yeah, and to always bounce back. So I think I quite like the contrast when he really was. Um, you know, when he was he was almost wiped out by by the incident that happens to the you know to, with the one woman that he actually really did love. Mm. Uh, I think that made him a bit more human. And now we're just going to have a little break, but join us again in part two. Welcome back to part two of this episode of the Booker Prize podcast. James, we were talking about... And if it, it, the book it could be... You know, at one point, I think Logan tries to summarise the meaning of life almost. And, and it, it's basically, it's just luck. It's just dumb luck. You have, you, your life is the, the amount of good luck you had and the amount of bad luck you had, and that's it. 
Yeah, but isn't that sort of his fatal flaw in a way? Is in a, There's like this whole contrast between him and his best friend Peter Scabius and Peter becomes the sort of best-selling novelist as opposed to Logan's career petering out and yeah, petering out, that's no, a great no, no. pun, not intentional. Um, you know, Peter becomes a knight, Logan ends up literally eating dog food to survive. And um, I, I do think that part of what... <laughs> What Logan's flaw is, is this sense that he writes it at some point in one of his early diaries, this complete and utter lack of satisfaction ever, that he must always be striving towards something else. Like, it's not enough. For example, when he's with Anna, it's not enough that they have a wonderful time together in bed, talking, smoking, drinking. He has to follow her husband. He has to, or, you know, the man who might be her husband, he has to, like, unwind uh, the backstory to her life and then write this salacious novel about it. It's not enough to just be content in the moment. The book ends obviously with him quite old and living in France. Um, and basically it, all ambition has died. And that <laughs> seems to come as a relief. I mean, you're quite young, Joe. The, <laughs> the idea that, presumably the idea of ambition dying would be a hideous thought. Um, I don't know if it's his ambition that's died so much as everyone he loves in his life has been wiped out. So what have you got to live for? It's like more than anything. I know it's a book about the 20th century and all the events and people attached to it, but the bits that really shine to me are the people that Logan lives for, whether it's, um, you know, his father at the beginning or Tess or Freya and Stella I think what you know, once that big event that Sarah has alluded to happens and the loves of his life is sort of wiped out, that's when he kind of really, you know, he has this brief reunion with um, his son Lionel, which seems to start to bring him back together. And of course, that ends horrendously. No spoilers. And then, you know, what has he really got except his dog and his cat? And then even his dog dies. I don't know if it's ambition that dies, that, but you know, the the ability to give and receive love just kind of fizzles out of his life really cruelly. You think it's just he gets to a place of acceptance where he stops, you know, where he just makes peace with the fact that he doesn't have as much power as he used to or he, he can't ch make a change like he used to be able to. So he's just, he is, he, he's eventually, just before dying, he's, he's definitely more in the moment. Exactly that, though, the, the, the accepts he's a failed novelist, which obviously for decades gnaws away at him. Well, yeah, but was a successful person and, and still, yeah, still. I was only going to say he's still trying to write a novel at the time of his death. He's writing Octet. That, that is true, but you, you, don't, you don't get the impression that he's gnawed away with regretted his failure quite so much as he was when he was a young, younger man, don't you think? Well, but was he gnawed away with, with failure? I mean... He's ferociously jealous of Peter, who, who does make it. Only for a brief moment. And and to be fair, I, I kind of read that since he slept with most of Peter's wives, there's like a weird little, you know, ever since their well, school Peter, days. Peter's of, no angel, though. We don't want to Oh yeah, Peter yeah. Peter's <laughs> been a nice guy. <laughs> no, no, no. He's a, he's a mad narcissist, isn't he? He's horrible. Yeah. Uh, was, were there any bits of the book that you particularly liked? Because it, it is so episodic, uh, Sarah. Any, any bits of the book sections that you particularly liked and particularly or particularly didn't? Well, I think I'm a bit of a sap, but I really like when he found happiness. Um, and, you know, because he was, he, he sort of, he, well, I actually enjoyed it when he, you know, when he got, 
he got married despite knowing that, you know, perhaps it's not the right person or, you know, he sort of just got carried along and got married. And <laughs> I've actually done that, so maybe that's why <laughs> I empathised with that a little bit. <laughs> and then he actually did find the love of his life, which I did too. <laughs> so maybe that bit is, uh, I just see myself in that right? bit of narcissist moment. Um, but, yeah, I quite liked him. A bit soppy, I quite liked it. Well, despite him having to hurt his, uh, his wife and... Uh, you know, and her loaded family. You know, I, I did love actually when he was stuck out, you know, it was in Norfolk or somewhere in a lovely big posh house and constantly having to sort of entertain the in-laws and they would just run the corner and all that. I really enjoyed all of that, actually, uh, where he was just like, Jesus, where he just wanted to escape <laughs> and get away from the in-laws and get back to town and get back to act, you know, back where the action was. It's really trapped by his marriage, and then his wife says, "You know, good news, I'm pregnant." <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. oh my God, yeah. James, what about you? Uh, I really like the school section at the beginning. I mean, I did, I did like most of it too, but I did, I did wonder towards the end when, um, like, the bit where he goes to, to see the Biafran War. I mean, Boyd has said, you know, you'll never guess, but I just wanted to write about the Biafran War because I grew up, <laughs> I grew up while that was happening. And and the thing is, yes, you would guess. It's completely, completely, it, is, it is a book which allows. William Boyd to write about all the things he's interested in and all the people he's yeah. interested in. And I thought the bit at the end, when, or not towards the end, he becomes involved in sort of urban terrorism and the Bader-Meinhofs. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, nah, to that, to that bit. <laughs> that's I thought, enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that, that's enough 20th century big events, Ed. Um, but all the rest, no, terrific. Yeah, the school stuff's great, isn't it? With the old, uh, with the rugby injuries, like the bone-crunching rugby injuries because they've got that bet on at the beginning. Yeah, they make a series of mad challenges to each other, the three three main mm. characters. You, did you have a theory about that? I had a theory about that. It might be a pretentious theory. Let's hear it. Um, well, just to explain to anyone who may not have um, read the book, it opens out on Logan's school days and his two best friends, Peter Scabius and Ben Leaping. And to kind of make the term go by faster, they set each other these challenges. So Ben's challenge is to become a paid up member of the Roman Catholic Church because he's Jewish. So to essentially change faiths convincingly, compellingly. Peter's challenge is to get with a kind of farm girl called Tess, who he then does and ends up marrying. And um, Logan's challenge is to kind of become a kind of star player in his school rugby team. And so I kind of think that it's really broad, but then this is a really broad novel each of those challenges are kind of representative of the interests that Logan kind of carries with him for the rest of his life. So he's really, really attentive. The The kind of rugby challenge is the kind of aspect of his body and how his body carries him through life and it allows him to attain certain glories. So in adulthood, those are mainly sexual conquests, but also the ways that his body betrays him and breaks down, as in maybe like in prison or like when he gets hit by a by a truck later on in life. Um, and then there's the question of, um, I suppose, love or, you know, motivations for love and how decent love is with Peter's challenge and with Ben's challenge, the question of spirit or faith, although Logan's quite adamantly an atheist for all of the novel, but I suppose just an attitude to faith that he ends up kind of parlaying into the idea of luck, the amount of luck one is given in life. And those themes kind of go like quite smoothly through the book. So body, body, mind, and spirit. Body, mind, and spirit. Oh, it's a good theory. My my, my theory of those challenges is much bleaker actually, which is just that you, you know life consists of setting yourself essentially pointless challenges. 
Well, do you know what? So, you know, when Logan's writing his like book on Shelley and there's a note in retrospect that he writes, says, why Shelley? I can't really remember now. I'd read the lyric poems at school and like most adolescents, I thought I understood them. I remember reading a quotation from Byron's mistress. She came to know Shelley in Pisa not long before he died and described him as being very tall with a slight stoop and reddish hair. She had, he had very bad skin, she observed, but also impeccable manners. I think it was this brief portrait which presented me with a Shelley that I did not recognise that stimulated me. Shelley was suddenly real, uh, not the fey blonde genius of popular iconography, and I wanted to know more about him. And as I did learn more about him, I wanted to present my Shelley to the world as the accurate, uh, veridical one. And I kind of feel like that's Logan's entire, like from the challenges to the travelling, to the sex, to everything. It's... I think if you heard about this man objectively, you'd think, my God, what a life, what a mythical figure. But instead, you get this kind of like boy who has been setting himself sort of like pointless challenges <laughs> for the entirety of his life. But that's what humanizes him. That's what makes him an actual believable person. Uh, Sarah, do you want to referee the uh, theories <laughs> on the school challenges? <laughs> or, or do you not want to bother? <laughs> don't want to bother, to be honest. No, I, I, I saw them just as, uh, as sort of school, schoolboy japes, really, and just hammered home sort of how hellish that public school system. I to be honest, I think that might be right. I think Joe and I might be striving to kind of find a, <laughs> to find a structure in this book where, where, which is essentially random. I mean, I think partly one of the reasons he did Shelley was because uh, Boyd did his PhD on Shelley. But, um, and also Boyd, Boyd, Boyd went to Gordonston, which is the public school that Prince Charles so famously hated for its complete toughness. Yeah. So I think that there's that in it too. Oh, and, the, and when, uh, oh God, it's just heartbreaking with... Um... When he receives the news of of his father dying and the, yes. and the yeah. schoolmaster, and then he gets thrashed, he gets a jolly good thrashing, doesn't he, for his misdemeanor? I think he's skipped out on a bit of the cross country run. That's right. He's gone to the pub instead of the cross country run, and, and the headmaster basically yeah, says, yeah. "Your dad's died, and now I'm going to thrash you." Yeah, well, that's instead <laughs> of expel you. <laughs> that is pretty grim. Oh. Uh, I don't think this is a spoiler. The final line of the book is, there were no obituaries, which remi uh, remind the more pretentious among us of the end of the tempest, you know, that everything disappears, leaves not a rack behind. Do you think it is a melancholy book that basically your life happens and then you're dead and <laughs> there are no obituaries? <laughs> or, or am I just going through Am I just going through some sort of crisis? <laughs> yeah, you, you just need a snack, James. <laughs> yeah, a, just, a, just a little hug, I'll be fine. Low, low, low blood sugar, you're like, oh, God. Uh, well, I think there's really lovely, uplifting moments and there's a lot of passion in there and a bit, and a bit of adventure. And I found it... Um, You've got to remember, I was I was also trying to um, I was also plowing through other books at the same time. So I would get in and drive up six junctions of the M1 whilst listening to to William Boyd, and it and I found it a really sort of soothing listen because it's just so far away from my world, from my you know from my you know upbringing and my life and my and class, you know, with the with the whole public school. And, and with his travels, it was just such an escapism for me that I really, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it as a listen for sure. I wonder how I'd feel about it if I'd read it on the, you know, on the page. I think on the page it's quite funny in a way. Like I laughed yeah. a lot. 
Yeah. No, I mean, this is a funny book as much as anything else. And just going back to my crisis, Boyd himself has said, you know, I, I am essentially a comic novelist because I think life is comic and absurd. And I think that's, that's, that's there too. So, Sarah, uh, uh, one traditional question we ask, um, I was find it quite a tricky one myself, is um, who would you recommend this book to? Oh, that's a great question. Um, who would I recommend it to? Is it somebody personal to me that I recommend it to? Oh, that's no use to people listening. <laughs> it can be. You may be a bit niche, but you can go for it. I could just tell you. Yeah, I, I recommend it to my husband, thanks. He always reads uh, non-fiction, so I'm trying to push him towards a world of fiction. I would recommend it to somebody who, would just, who wants to really lose themselves um, in a different time, in a different place, and also is quite fond of a bit of a cad and a heartbreaker. Uh, and it is a funny book, like you say. So, uh, yeah, I would uh, recommend it to somebody who wants to uh, escape away to a world of, of posh people and hijinks and a bit of drama. Uh, but I agree with your thing about uh, for people who think they don't like fiction for non-fiction. I got, I got in a bit of trouble mm. for, for gross sexism by suggesting it that bloke like, like history books. And um, <laughs> <laughs> God, I'm, I'm getting it again because like, I don't see Joe's face. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, was the, what was the punishment mean today, Joe? What, Oh, nothing. I, I just said that, you know, women hate historical fiction. Women have no concept of historical fiction. I still maintain that, you know, it, on the whole, Stalingrad by Anthony Beaver would be re read by more blokes, I think. That kind of thing. So people who like middle-aged men who like that kind of book and think, I, I'm, I'm not sure about fiction, this would be a nice way into fiction. It's the Roman Empire thing all yeah, over yeah. again. That's it. I will tell the middle-aged man in my life uh, to read it. Yeah, it's a nice way into fiction. Copy that. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much, Sarah, for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks to have so you. much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Lovely to be on. Thank you. Between the Covers continues at seven o'clock on Mondays on BBC Two. Absolutely. Yeah, all, all past episodes are on iPlayer. Yeah, and thanks for having me. It was really nice. How's that, James? That was good. I think. Uh, Certainly for British listeners, that's the most famous person we've had on the show, I think. Um, worldwide listeners, maybe George Saunders, people like that. But um, as I wasn't blowing smoke, I wasn't being a showbiz lovey. <laughs> or uh, no more than, no, I wasn't at all uh, by saying how much I love Between the Covers. I think it's a really, it's really hard to get that balance with books, shows, I think, between. Basically, it's very hard to get the balance between taking books seriously, but not too reverently. Not thinking they're like these China beautiful things, you know, with their books all. And I think it's really, it's really good at that balance yeah that's it for this week huge thanks again to special guest sarah cox and you can find out more about our december book of the month any human heart by william boyd at thebookerprizes.com and if you want to watch the episode of between the covers where sarah and her guests discuss the book uh, check the show notes uh, for the iplayer link and definitely worth a watch next week we have a special almost end of the year treat for you which is a fascinating and funny interview with the 2023 international booker prize winners Georgi gospodinov and angela rodell I, I, we did that a while ago, let's be honest, and it was really good. I, I do it was amazing. recommend that. And finally, remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Substack at The Booker Prizes. Until next time. Goodbye. Bye. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamia and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Kevin Miolo. And the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy Super Yacht production for The Booker Prizes. 